0: This is an ABC podcast. G'day, this is the ABC's very own nature show, Off Track, and I'm Ann Jones. Take a listen to this. We're going to visit Triple Blue, one of the most successful lyrebird singers in the world. That means going through locked gates into areas of the Blue Mountains National Park that are quite remote. It means shrugging off sooty calling just before sunrise because we've got to keep on going. We've got another singer to look for. It means sawing through fallen branches over the four-wheel drive track with a fold-out saw from a multi-tool. OK, this will probably snap now. It's laborious, but it works. And then, finally, in the shadow of the three sisters in the Blue Mountains, deep in a valley.
1: Uh, so this is Triple Blue where Triple Blue lives.
0: Anastasia Diel has been visiting Triple Blue for years now.
1: He's a wonderful male, he's very got a really nice long tail. We call him Triple Blue because we caught him one year and put colour bands on him. But that hasn't stopped him at all. He's um he's a very oh, yeah, avian interruption. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> So he's a very big singer um, and we've uh, recorded him since 2014 and he's a very successful male. So we've got three or four recordings now of copulations on his mound and it's, that's amazing because we started off with none at all. <laughs> so he's biased our sample somewhat because he's so successful. So he's one of our favourite males.
0: And what makes Triple Blue so successful?
2: The bird looks about suspiciously, then stalks to the mound and begins with a beautiful song. The bird with the crescent moon tail. The superb
0: lyrebird. The calls of lyrebirds are not just what you might have seen on television or heard in stories or repeated over and over again. They're more complex and much, much more cool. And in this, the second of three programmes plus podcast extras on Off Track, we're finding out the real story of one of Australia's most iconic songbirds the superb lyrebird. Anastasia Diel is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Wollongong with affiliations with the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment at the University of Western Sydney and Cornell Uni in the US. She spends cold winters studying lyrebirds in the field and then the rest of the year analyzing the sounds. They live in these
1: sort of dense often dark forests. You can't see very far in front of you. Uh, not even a lyrebird can, we certainly can't. So sound is a much better way to advertise long distance. So the lyrebird has a really varied repertoire, but you can divide it into different sections. So there's what we heard this morning, when you've got this very long liquid stream of mimicry and it's sort of punctuated by this very loud, live specific whistle song. It carries a long way. I've called it recital song <laughs> because... For most of the time, the male is just sitting in a tree like a normal songbird, just belting out this song, which is beautiful, but just like a a human recital concert, the visual aspect of the performance is not particularly important. So often he's completely camouflaged when he's singing the song. He's got his tail folded behind him, he's perched, um, and he's just like a normal songbird. (laughs)
0: I love how Anna said, like a normal songbird there, because sometimes lyrebirds are anything but normal. This whistle song and this behaviour, singing while standing up in a tree, is beautiful. But it's separate from what might be called the main performance, the one on his breeding mound. Triple Blue, the lyrebird's stud muffin, has several mounds and they're all deep in bracken, a ferny plant which is reaching up to my belly button and higher.
1: It's a really nice-looking land. So this is a circular patch, well, pile of dirt, I guess, but it's cleared on the forest floor, and it's in the middle of this these really high um, ground ferns, bracken. So we're actually, some of those ferns look almost head height. So it's a big job to pull them all out and keep them clean.
0: That's almost perfectly round. And the way in which he's um, got the soil, it's all fluffy and beautifully distributed across his mound, isn't and there's no footprints or anything. It's as if it was sprinkled from the heavens.
1: <laughs> they spent a lot of time raking them through. It looks like he was probably on, on there this morning, keeping it nice and clean. It's a lot of work. And uh, this is basically his dancing platform. So... When there's a female around he'll try and get her to follow him to the mound and he'll do a, a big um, song and dance display he puts his tail over his head and he has a sequence of songs that he pairs to movements and it's and hopefully the female will come onto the mound with him the dance sort of around her and then if she likes him then they they mate on the mound itself at the conclusion of the dance
0: And was that him just singing there?
1: Yeah, that's him. He'd like us to go away, so he can sing around his territory. But he'll be back very shortly since we're gone.
0: What we're hearing right now isn't strictly his breeding display or his dance song. That sounds very different. To start with, he'll lure a female towards his mound... And the way he's situated his mounds in the bracken forests means that she has to come really close if she wants to see what's going on. And that plays right into his hands. Or should I say, claws. She'll peek out through the bracken and his display will fill her field of vision.
1: And then he flings his tail over the top of his head in the full display position and then he does these four songs. So we've imaginatively called them song A, B, C, and D. And song A sounds extraordinary. It sounds like maybe a 1980s video arcade game or laser guns that's sometimes been called, but it's not, it's not mimicry. It's the live bird's own original vocalizations. And that's what he starts with, his tail fell out. And that's followed usually by several iterations of the B-C song. Um, B is the really loud sound that lyrebirds make when they're dancing that travels an extraordinarily long way. It's very low as well.
0: That shriek is the B song, and these dance recordings are all by Anna and her colleagues as a part of their research. The C song... Is interposed between those shrieks. It's sort of hard to make out, even if I turn it up really loud. So let me alter this sound a little bit more, so you can hear it. If I cut out the shrieks for a minute and just make a repeating loop of the sea song, you'll be able to hear it more clearly. It's a hollow, clicking sort of sound with a huggada huggada sort of rhythm in this case. And then it's easier to hear and identify that C song in the lyrebird's own repertoire. So that's the A, the laser gun, B, the shriek, and C, the tap tap in between.
1: And then we get to the D song and that's entirely mimicry. So all the rest of it is lyrebird his own original vocalisations, but D-song, most of it is mimicry. We still don't know exactly why they mimic, <laughs> uh, we're starting to get some ideas. We know that males seem to all agree on what to mimic, so in the wild they're mimicking a set repertoire of sounds and all the males seem to be doing something extremely similar. So. Uh, particularly within one location, so they they really like to mimic kookaburras. <coughs> and they really like to mimic yellow-tailed black cockatoos. Great shrike thrushes are favourites. Um, baby currawongs for some extraordinary reason. Whipbirds are a big favourite. Um, Crimson Rosella, alarm calls, not so much their song. So it's not just songs, it's not just alarm calls, it's this mix, but they all, they're all doing
0: the same thing. Is there any sound or song actually associated once he's convinced her that he's good enough to mate with. He, uh, when he's
1: actually mating, he produces song D, and that's what we're, we're working on at the moment. So he actually sings while he's, he's mating with the female, and that's totally weird. <laughs> um, but once he's finished, he'll often, I think nearly always, he switches to a very boring clicking sound and starts walking backwards, and we don't know why that
0: is at all. <laughs> This is the sort of thing that scientists like Anastasia Diel and Alex Maisie can find out by placing little cameras in boxes at the dancing mounds of birds like triple blue. We wade through the bracken to change the batteries.
1: There's been a few uh, hidden logs and boot tracks.
0: <laughs> oh, there you go. Look, feathers. I hope that's got. That there has been a mating on this mound. How can you tell?
1: So we've got these feathers on the mound. See, oh, it's recent, and they're left by the female during a mating event.
0: So you'd
1: say triple blue. Triple blue struck again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and in this recording of postcoital clicking from triple blue. Which is from the researchers, you can even hear the female as she rearranges her feathers to go all smooth again after mating. <laughs> Why do you think that triple blue is successful? At
1: this stage, we can only Yes, um, but he certainly is a very prolific singer. He sings all the time during the breeding season. He sounds pretty good, he's pretty loud, pretty confident. Yeah, he must be a good singer and he must have a really nice song and dance display. Though, exactly what it is about his display, we haven't quite honed
0: in on yet. Sexiness in lyrebirds isn't just about singing, triple blue is a triple threat. He's impressing these females with his perfectly presented mounds, like he's a professional landscape designer with an immaculate CV. Then, his elaborate songwriting and performance. And then, on top of that, he's dancing at the same time as he's singing. It's
1: sort of a sidesteps, a bit like the grapevine. And his tail is in a wide position. He narrows his tail and he jumps and he flaps his wings at the same time. So it's quite a vigorous and, and wonderful thing to watch. Tail down, he's moved away. From the mound, that was a full dance with all the movements. I could see it quite clearly. I'm just here, moving through the undergrowth
0: now. So with, with it being a dance... Mm. rather than just a movement. What's the difference? How do you define it as a dance?
1: Yeah, this is a really nice challenge that we had. (laughs) We defined dance movements as movements that were (laughs) non-utilitarian, so they weren't associated with like standing upright or moving from one spot to another or trying to forage. They were superfluous. We did also manage to show that the dance movements were... In addition to song. So in some animals you have these, some birds particularly mannequins, there's a nice work it shows that these elaborate movements are actually integral to the generation of the sound. So they produce these extraordinary display sounds with their wing movements and um, but the wings' the movement themselves look spectacular too. So the two things are physiologically linked. You can't decouple the two. But in lyrebirds, we know that they can sing without dancing. So we know that the dance is not required to, to produce the song. And we've got examples of lyrebirds putting what we think is the wrong movement to the wrong song. So they can mismatch the two, that those are sort of rare pairings. Uh, so it does really seem like the the dance choreography is is separate physiologically in some way, at least to some extent and an added extra. So it kind of suggests that probably the song came first before the the movements, but a bit difficult to test that one.
0: All the males in a given area seem to agree on what are the good species to mimic, and deep in a valley in the Blue Mountains National Park, the lyrebird alpha male, triple blue, is a magnificent mimic. I'll try to identify some of the birds he's copying here as he tries to lure a female to one of his dancing mounds. Lewin's honey eater. Sounds like a tommy gum. Satin bower bird. That's the male display. Currawong. Kookaburra. Male whip bird. The beak clacking of a wattlebird, perhaps. Yellow-tailed black cocky flight calls of a group of parrots and hear how he even fades them off into the distance. King parrot. New Holland honey eater perhaps. Yellow-tailed black cocky. Rosella chime call. And that's a baby currawong begging. Triple blue is such an amazing performer. But like the rest of the wild lyrebirds in Australia, he doesn't make saws or cameras or car door sounds or alarms, phones or even some birds. They're very selective. Carol Probitz is a bird guide
2: and researcher. I tell you what, a good example of that, um, in the Blue Mountains, um, sulfur-crested cockatoos have become really abundant in the, over the last 20 years or so. Before that time, they, they were really quite um, uncommon in the area. The amount that you see and hear them now, you would think it, it would be a, an absolute you know, obvious bird that live birds would mimic. And yet, um, I I don't think there's any or very few examples of, of live birds in the area ever mimicking sulphur-crested cockatoos. And um, I'd be very interested to to see how long it takes before before that call starts to find its way in, into their repertoire. There's no copying of
0: sulphur-crested cockies. These are real ones, and no real evidence of male lyrebirds mimicking human-made sounds to attract their mates in the wild. The rumours of flutes, trains, organs dogs, we have no evidence of this actually occurring in the wild. In reality, the wild lyrebird male repertoire is actually really stable. There's little to no change, even over decades.
2: Lyrebirds, in large part, learn their mimicry from other lyrebirds. Now the original sounds, you know, hearing the original sounds keeps that mimicry accurate. Um, a, a good example of this is that in um, birds were introduced to Tasmania between 1934 and 1949, and for many years they continued to to mimic birds from the mainland. And it was only gradually that, you know, after many generations, that that those mainland birds have have almost disappeared and been replaced by the, the Tasmanian species, mimicry of Tasmanian species. I think the very last one to disappear seems to have been the whipbird. There's still there are still elements of the whipbird's call which is recognisable even after all this time. So that would be many generations of, of lyrebirds, birds, but to the point now where it's it's almost not recognisable. It's changed because they don't have the the original bird to to keep it accurate.
0: This recording of a Tasmanian lyrebird is from Neville Hayes. You can hear clearly that the lyrebird has substituted the pied currawong of the mainland for the black currawong call of the island state. If I stop that and play you a real black Karawang call... ..then the lyrebird from Tasmania... ..this substitution has taken decades because they're not copying directly from the sounds around them but from other lyrebirds.
1: So lyrebirds, like the other songbirds, they learn their vocalisations, so that's a culturally transmitted trait, and that means that particular. Variants of their songs are passed down not just from parent offspring, like like a genetically inherited trait, but also to maybe siblings and unrelated individuals of multiple generations. So there's lots of different transmission paths, just like uh, language in humans. I've had the personal experience of being yes, I started off working in one population in Sherbrooke Forest and becoming extremely familiar. I would dream about lyrebird sounds um, with their vocalisations and then going on holiday somewhere else and hearing something in the bush and thinking, what the hell is that? It's really low, it's really deep, it's liquid, it's coming from the ground. Oh, it must be a lyrebird!" but it sounded so different to what I was used to that it really took me a while to adjust. And if you travel throughout Australia, these dialects and lyrebird songs are really striking. They're really varied. So in this new project, we want to first document those dialects and see where they are in the landscape, how different are they and which part of the eyebirds song. But also some of these, these variants are just, are just uh, aesthetically incredible. In other species, we're interested in... in conserving not just diversity of species but sometimes we're interested in what they look like. For example there's the white limeroid possum in North Queensland um, which is very distinctive visually and we think that's worthy of conservation and we haven't thought about so much about sound but if we have these incredible vocal variants in some places, shouldn't we be concerned to maintain those? One of the horrible side effects of Habitat loss worldwide and the introduction of invasive species is, is that landscapes are becoming more homogenous. The same thing is happening to soundscapes too. But we have this incredible bird <laughs> that has incredible variation in um, just its own vocalisations, and shouldn't we at least know what they, they are, what the extent of that variation is and how that's generated before we, we make further decisions about habitat reduction, in, at least so we know... What we're we going to lose if we go further down that track.
0: Help Anastasia and her colleagues understand the accents and dialects of lyrebirds in Australia by whipping out your phone and recording the nearest lyrebirds. The email to send it to is offtrackabc.net.au. Make sure you take a note of the exact location, the time, and the date. That will help the researchers. There's always stories about lyrebirds imitating things like steam trains and phones. And if you've got a recording of that, please send it through. We'd love to hear it and the researchers will be very interested as well. Luke Nuttall sent in this recording from the Bogong Peaks conservation area in the Snowy Mountains. Remember, for extras and long recordings of lyrebirds to relax to, Head to your nearest podcast app and subscribe to Off Track. There's things that we put in that feed that we don't put on the radio. And next week, in the final episode of this series on lyrebirds, we're going to confront head on the biggest lyrebird myth of all that it's just the males who sing. For now, I'll leave you with a little recording sent into Off Track by Lisa Stewart, who was visiting Hillsville Sanctuary, where the lyrebirds are very habituated to humans. Because I think that after all of the work today, the lyrebirds need a little round of applause. Oh, well, that
1: was very
0: I'm Ann Jones, and I'll see you next time on Off Track. That's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts,
2: live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.